no matter what you do, always trust the process. Welcome to Trust the Process, a podcast on entrepreneurship from MIT's Trust Center. My name is Chris Burns, and I'm the host around here. This episode features Trust Center Executive Director Paul Cheek. Hi, my name is Paul Cheek. And Jesus Lares, an alumni of the Trust Center's Fuse and Delta V programs. Hi, my name is Jesus Lares. Lares is also the founder of Eraverse, a startup looking to build collaborative workspaces for web-based business. Here we go. When you first came to MIT, did you think that entrepreneurship was a space that you'd spend a lot of time uh, working within? No, to be honest, I had no clue. I knew that in some sense, I wanted to start a company. Like I mentioned, when I was young, I thought the the idea intrigued me, but I had no clue how to do it. I didn't know the doors were open for me. You know, I, I'm an immigrant. My parents really don't know that sort of system in the U.S. so well. I was born in Venezuela, and then when I was six years old, I moved to Florida with my family. I remember very clearly moving to the United States. Actually, I hadn't flown on planes really until then. So I remember looking out the window and seeing a whole other nation below me arriving, coming out of the plane. These are pretty core memories for me. It was a little bit difficult, I would say. One of the main issues was I didn't speak a word of English. And of course, I was thrown straight into school because this was like kindergarten age for me. Luckily, ESL helped that a lot. And also one of the nice things about being super young is you learn languages very quick. I think within four months, I had a pretty nice understanding of English. But nonetheless, there are some issues, right? So people can be kind of racist, you know, if you even especially little kids because they have no filter, if you sound different or if you behave differently. So it was certainly a little bit hard for me to make friends at first. I'd be a little disruptive in class. Oftentimes I didn't know what was going on. Even teachers sometimes, you know, they'll discriminate against you a little bit or like say this and that to you. So there are some hurtful memories there, but there's also something very beautiful about being an immigrant. You get to have two cultures and experience two completely different, well, not completely different. There are similarities between all cultures, but two fairly different ways of life. Yeah, I absolutely love this. This uh, The journey that you've come through living in two different cultures in, in some sense at the same time. Now, you sit here today and you're the co-founder of a company, Eraverse. Can you tell us a little bit more about Eraverse and what the company does? Yeah, absolutely. So Eraverse is disrupting the way we build communities online. This is what I'd say is our mission. And we're using virtual worlds to do so because something that I have deep conviction in is that this is the more natural way for us to interact and the future of the internet will look like this. And so like, you know, if I, if I opened the app, what would I see? You would see a bunch of virtual worlds for organizations, and you can join whichever one you belong to and become part of a community. So it's productive. You go in and you do tasks which advance your skills. You could put on your resume, and you're also helping a project that you believe in. You know, as we look at Fuse and your experience through Fuse and through the entrepreneurial journey is something that's become really important while you know it from exploring two different cultures, the process of it, uh, I think is something that Fuse uh, uh, set up structure to explore in more detail. Um, I think back to the first time we met, which if I recall correctly, was on a Zoom call 
at the beginning of Fuse, perhaps we'd met right before Fuse started, but my memory is a Zoom call that you and I had office hours during the Fuse program. You shared with me that you're an engineer and, and you know, we had that in common, but I then heard you begin to go on. You were, we were talking about what your goals were going to be for the upcoming week in the Fuse program, right? So Fuse, you have two and a half weeks to do nothing but work on your startup. You're focused exclusively on building this business. And as we were discussing some of the goals that you had, I remember they were really focused on building product, right? And, you know, if you were to think back on that meeting that we had, how would you reflect on it now? Yeah, I think that's a super important meeting in my life, to be honest. I remember it very clearly as well. I remember how intense you were and how much <laughs> how much I felt like you knew about business, which I still feel that way, essentially. It's very cool. Well, I think I wish I would have been more receptive or more able to actually understand what you were saying back then. I mean, this is a mindset I had for a long time of just building product. I didn't fully understand what it meant to talk to users, to understand their needs, how to do it effectively, how to get actual knowledge from it. Because one thing is you can't have interviews with users and not get much out of it if you don't know the right things to ask uh, or just how to do it correctly or how to actually open your mind up to it. So I guess what I wish I would have done back then is read uh, the 24 steps by Bill. That probably would have been quite helpful in actually understanding what the purpose of all of it was. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And the ability to go out and talk to people. Yeah. Any of us can go out and talk to people, but how do we do it the right way so that we extract the information that we need so that we can continue building the business that uh, we've set out to. And, you know, that really comes back to the impact we want to have in the world. I always talk about my graveyard of products that I built when I was younger that I hadn't gone out and like talked to users up front before sitting down to, to begin building. And those products, yeah, sure, they weren't quite as valuable. But once I started that process of going out and talking to people, identifying their pain points and exploring the potential solutions for them, that's when... I was able to build products that had a, a real impact on the world because I recall that you mentioned that uh, what you were working on in Fuse is not the same as what you're working on now with Arrowverse. So can you talk us through just how the idea has changed over the course of time, especially uh, as I call out one of the three questions that we help students to answer in the Fuse program is, is this the right idea for me to be working on you? What did it look like in Fuse? What did the, the project look like in Fuse? And uh, how did it change immediately after Fuse? I'll explain what I was doing in Fuse. It's probably going to sound very technical because back then I thought tech first. Um, so let's see how it goes. The idea back then was called Treefuls. And what I wanted to do was create a system for people to motivate themselves and track their goals. So how do we get from goal tracking in a web app with uh, tree structures to the metaverse? Wow, great question. There's so many shifts there, but you can kind of see this theme of video games actually throughout and how video games work and how they affect our psychology. I started out with this idea of video game aspects to motivate people. Then this switched a little bit to more of like a social app throughout the year. I was thinking, okay, how can I motivate? What are other ways you can motivate people? Well, you're motivated when you're in a community and people around you are pushing you to do stuff. How can I, how can I build in now social aspects to motivate people other than just the goal setting aspect? So that was the first shift, a little bit to social. And then it went a little bit more into social. Oh, how do I connect people? How do you actually build these communities? So then it started becoming more social. And then it was kind of all coming together near IAP time, which was how do I mix the video game aspects, the goal tracking, having sort of an avatar or a character of yourself, your real self with social. 
And that's how you enter metaverse and virtual worlds a little bit. And then from there, we kept making pivot after pivot after pivot until we are here now, essentially building virtual world tools to motivate people to collaborate with organizations. And so on that journey, right, you're thinking astronaut, you're thinking CEO, entrepreneurship is not yet really in the mix, right? From early childhood and, and, and through uh, high school before coming to MIT, is there anybody who stands out to you as uh, a mentor figure of sorts as you've come through that journey? Yeah, I've had plenty of mentors um, in, in many different ways as well. Some personal, some, some entrepreneurs back in Venezuela who were my mentors. And then also people who mentored me in physics and taught me to love science and to love knowledge. Back in Venezuela, my grandfather and his father, they're actually entrepreneurs in, in a few different ways. So we're from a small town called Maturin, which is eastern Venezuela. And he started the first ice factory there because he used to work with the Americans in the oil camps that they have there, petroleum, and they had refrigerators, they had ice, but the local Venezuelans had no clue what it was. So he started this ice factory and he was trying to get it off the ground. He would literally give ice to people for free, these giant blocks of ice, leave it on their doorstep, and they had no clue what to do with it. They literally <laughs> didn't know. So they would just leave it there and then the next day he'd walk around and see all these puddles. So that was my great grandfather, I never met him. Um, he passed away before I was born. But my grandfather took a lot of that and continued the ice factory. He started a cattle ranch. And I did spend a lot of time with my grandfather seeing how he ran his businesses and how he dealt with people. I remember riding in the back of his truck and he'd always, and to me this was so fun when I was like five years old because it's just a pickup truck, you know, riding in the back. He'd always tell me to jump out and go open the gates for him. And I remember these big green gates that were, you know, like twice the size of me when I was five years old. But I would go and I'd open them. There'd be cows around. There'd be different plants that, you know, different fruits and vegetables he's growing. And you also got to understand it's a pretty different climate than anything you'd see in the U.S. I say Florida is the most comparable, but super humid down there, very tropical. There's tons of animals, just wildlife. And we call it El Monte. So just tall grass, essentially. I'd say it can smell... Like if you go to a forest here in, in New England, it smelled probably pretty similar, but it's even different than that. It's the smell of a jungle. I'm not sure how much I could compare it to anything here in the US. But it used to be quite sizable. There were a few large houses there. I think there used to be thousands of cattle, probably close to 10,000 almost, which is a huge farm. But here's the, the part where it starts getting sad. So in recent times, I'm sure you've heard the name Venezuela in the news, it's the country due to many factors, economic factors, political factors, it's kind of become a very insecure place. And over the years, his properties have been attacked by bandits, his livestock have been stolen, even parts of his land are being taken by the government or sequestered. Uh, all of this has kind of resulted in his farm nowadays being a shell of what it once was. One other thing which is pretty sad is he doesn't want to leave it behind, you know, because he put his whole life into it. He never took vacations. He's a hard worker because he always imagined this is what he's going to leave for his family. This is going to be his legacy, essentially, like why I work so hard every day is because I feel like I'm building something. Well, the same thing motiv motivated him. But because of outside factors, now it's kind of become I don't want to say it's gone down, the, gone down the drain, but it's really a shell of what it once was. So 
all of our family tells him, you should leave, you should come to America, sell it now while you can. It's only going to get worse in the future. But he just refuses to do so. And, you know, when we think about Fuse as a program, uh, we think about, okay, well, what do we want students to get out of the program? And there's three key questions that we want students to be able to ask coming out of the program. The first, is this the right idea for me to be working on? The second, is this the right team for me to be working with? And third, is the life of a full-time entrepreneur right for me? And so as we think about the life of a full-time entrepreneur, right, you've gone on after Fuse, you wound up doing Delta V and you've done a lot in between. And so, you know, can you tell us a little bit about how Fuse helped you answer that question of whether the life of a full-time entrepreneur is right for you? I'd say what I was doing during Fuse is very similar to what I was doing during Delta V, and it's very similar to what I was doing now. I was just way less skilled and much more naive, you could say. So actually, during the program, I don't think I would have even looked at it that way. I wouldn't have made the connection or realized, oh, this is what it is. I'm doing it. I guess back then I felt like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just at home. I'm just talking to people. Um, maybe that's imposter syndrome, if you think about it. I didn't feel like I was a real entrepreneur then. So... I'd say back then I didn't make the connection. In hindsight, I really was doing it. How did it help me shift my mindset or realize that it was the life for me? Well, it taught me that I could do it. I enjoyed the process. I enjoyed what it was doing. Even though I felt a little you know, unsure or like I didn't have the skills to do it, I felt like I could learn it. So at that point, I think I made the decision, yeah, I'm gonna do entrepreneurship in my life. Whether it's gonna be immediately after college which is what I ended up doing, or years in the future, that door is there. Yeah, absolutely, right? A, a mindset and a skill set that you can apply anywhere in your life, right? Like you said, it could be immediately after college, or it could be at some point. I, I recall over the course of the past call it four months, there's also this need to narrow in and find focus in the early days in terms of where to deploy resources. And you've gone through that, that uh, process in depth. So wh where are you starting with Arrowverse? Who are you serving first and how are you helping them? Absolutely right. Well, we're actually in a bit of a shift right now. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but it's something early stage companies do all the time. I'm sure you're aware of that. <laughs> so essentially what we did first is create a social consumer app for MIT. So you can think of it as a virtual world social media just for the students. And you had to be a student to get in. And we got some interest with this, a couple hundred users, uh, a couple dozen, so a few dozen people who would come back every day. And this is good for a consumer direction. We learned a lot, we built it, but I think it's not the most efficient way to grow from now. So instead what we're doing is we've gotten interest from a few companies and organizations to build them functional worlds and they'll onboard their users onto it. So the direction we're going in now, filling this business need for companies is essentially providing them one of the greatest community building tools or marketing tools imaginable, which is a way to seed your idea into a world and then in a gamified way, have those community members bring in other community members and do tasks for the company, become collaborators, essentially. 
Yeah, and that's amazing. So we've got a shift even in the past couple weeks here, right? And this happened, it's happened over the course of the past couple of years, over the course of the past couple of months, and now it's happening live in real time, right? You're finding this shift from college-age students to companies that want to create these virtual worlds. So how exactly did you identify that there was a new market opportunity in serving these companies? So I think I've seen for a while that companies are trying to, quote unquote, enter the metaverse. Big companies have been doing it. Uh, they've been using existing platforms like Roblox. Another trend that I've seen is that a lot of new tech companies, so Web3 companies, they're also trying to create metaverses, but they don't have the resources to build it themselves or to build something in an existing world like Decentraland because you have to buy land, for example. I was put in touch with a few of these new tech companies, Web3 companies, from a few advisors, potential investors, entered conversations with them. And that's when I realized, wow, they're all trying to build Discord communities. Community building is crucial to them, but it's extremely hard. Very few of them are successful. And if the app were actually designed for the purpose of building and growing this community, it could be a lot easier for them. That's amazing. And it reminds me of where you got your start with college students, right? You had built a community of them and brought them together so that you could learn from them and listen to them and hear what sorts of needs they have. Can you tell us a little bit more about that early community that you built in the uh, development process for the company? Yeah, absolutely. That community was crucial for us uh, in those early days and also Part of where I had this problem myself, it was very important for us to build a community and it was very difficult. Uh, Discord is not built for it. They don't hold your hand for it. When you build a community for a company, essentially you want collaborators. And a lot of times the implicit assumption of people entering the community is they want to collaborate as well. But Discord does not make that clear at all. It has no structures to do this. But I'll actually answer the question you asked, which is how this how this Discord community did help us. It's extremely helpful. By having these people in your community, first of all, they're interested in what you're making and they're your target customer or the ideal user. So you are adding value to their lives with what you're making and you get to talk to them every day. There's no better way to understand what to build and how to solve their problems than to talk to them every day and actually be in a chat room with them. So it was helpful in learning what we should add into the social app that people would enjoy. It'd be helpful to talk to our users, the ones who use it the most, and see what they like, what they don't like, what they change, uh, what their friends would like. It basically directed us in those early days as to what we should design and why. And I think that's so important. And that's one of the places where I've seen you personally grow uh, since you started the Fuse program. Uh, it's amazing to hear you say that now, because I think the the old you would say, okay, let's start building it and then we'll give it to people and then we'll see what will happen. And instead you have this mindset of going and simply talking to the potential end users. But something that we talk about a lot is that to have a business, you need a paying customer, right? And that's where I see this shift, this pivot as extremely exciting, right? You had this initial beachhead market of college aged users and now you're making a shift to corporate organizations, right, as your end, end users, those employees of the organizations. And that shift is exciting to me because in my head, it puts you on a path to a business that not only creates value for those end users, but also captures value from them as well, right? Were there avenues to potentially capture value, make money from paying customers and serving college-age students? 
With college students, I think the way it would have worked is you have to get just a huge amount of users onto the platform and essentially use investor money to survive until you have a huge amount of users. And by huge, I truly mean huge. I think a lot of these consumer social platforms aren't going to make revenue until they have millions of users, which sure it's possible, but it's extremely hard and especially hard nowadays that they're considering that there are so many social platforms. As opposed to the business, this route with businesses, businesses have business problems. If you can solve one of them, they will be happy to pay for it from the start. So even if you onboard a couple of customers, you can start making money from day one. And it's much simpler. Uh, you don't have to think of you know an advertising model or selling virtual goods to users, which is kind of this ulterior way of making money, you can directly charge them on a per user basis. Yeah, absolutely. And you said something there that I want to dive a little bit deeper into, which is that uh, the businesses will pay you now, right? You don't need to survive on investor money to grow the user base for the next 12, 18 months or, or, or more, right? Uh, they'll pay you right now potentially before you even have a product to offer, right? And that's that initial validation. That if you can get that in, whether it's through a letter of intent, a pre-order, a prepayment or otherwise, uh, that becomes really exciting because then you can survive on their money instead of the investor's money. This is really exciting. This is a really exciting transition time for, for, uh, for Arrowverse. And so, you know, what's next? If you think about the next three months, let's say, um, yeah, what, what do you have in store? Getting LOIs from companies so <laughs> amazing is the most important part. We're building demos and getting LOIs right now. Turning those LOIs into pre-orders would be even better. Actually, getting some down payment on the table is even a step up from an LOI. But essentially, establishing a very strong validation to the point where it's worth building it now. So this goes back to what you are saying before. Maybe when I was a bit younger, I would have just built first and tried to sell it later. Now I have a different mindset. I'd rather validate the business need first and then build it once I'm absolutely sure that it won't be a waste of time. So those are the next few months. Yeah, and that's amazing. And LOI, let's dig into that a little bit deeper. Can you just describe what an LOI is and how you think about that? Sure. Uh, LOI is a letter of intent, and it's essentially a non-binding agreement from a business to buy your product in the future or use your product. So it's them telling you, I like this idea so much that if you had it, I would give you money for it in a semi-official way. Of course, they don't have to. It's not binding. But businesses usually aren't messing around. If they tell you they're going to do something, it's for a good reason, and they likely will follow through on their word. Uh, also, the reputation usually depends on them following through on their word. Yeah, absolutely. And these are so valuable. Even though they're not binding, they send a real signal, right? Those are things that you can use, these letters of intent, to say, okay, yes, we're going to double down. We're going to spend more money or more time to go and develop this product because we know people want it and they are going to buy it. They've committed to us. But it also gives us a leg up. You may not need to survive on investor dollars for the next 12 to 18 months while you grow a user base. But you may need to raise money, that initial upfront innovation product development debt. I want to go back all the way to the beginning. You wanted growing up to be an astronaut or a CEO. You're, I don't think you're an astronaut at this point, but you are the CEO of Arrowverse. It's a long journey to get there, um, but one that you know I hope has given you the the tools and the perspective uh, moving forward to go and have an impact in the world around us. Um, and so you know that's. 
what I have to ask you here today. Is there any last thoughts that you might share on the Fuse program for those listening? Do it. <laughs> oh, well, I love that. Uh, why? I think if you're even a little bit interested in entrepreneurship, even a little bit, it'll be the perfect way to get started. And you'll really learn through it whether it's something you're going to do or not. It's what it did to me. And, you know, I was in the same situation. I was a little bit interested. I didn't believe I could do it. I kind of applied on a whim almost because my friend told me to. But look at how it changed my life. It may do the same thing to you. Well, that's it for another episode of Trust the Process. This has been a production of the Martin Trust Center for MIT Entrepreneurship, located in Cambridge, Massachusetts. This show is edited and produced by me, Chris Burns, with special help from Greg Weimer. All of our music was written and recorded by Will Leet. Come again soon.